Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back, you health renaissance people. Okay, this is super exciting. Last week, I stayed up late till like 1.30 in the morning. Actually, it was around 2.30, but we left the party at 1.30. Fantastic event. God bless you, Dr. Tony. You got an amazing place and throw a good party, but it wiped me out. I could barely speak. I tried to get through last week, but this week, we're talking about how pandemics end, how pandemics end. Now, this is going to be exciting because you're going to learn how to heal fear and how to get your world back. Now, one thing, I've got to honor my brother-in-law. Okay, I've got three brother-in-laws. One of them decided to leave the planet this past uh, Christmas, Christmas morning. And, and if you knew what a cool flair, my brother's name is Jesse James. He lives 75 years on the planet. And I mean, we're all given life. Um, very few of us live it to the hilt, and this is a man that lived it to the the lifestyle. So God bless you, Jesse. Brother, I know you're up there in heaven, and uh, you picked a great day to leave the planet. So that means every year we're going to get together and celebrate Jesse's uh, leaving the planet. Now, all this stuff is going to be put on Dr. BVIP. Oh, and and so so when when you hear someone leaving the planet, I'm very, very, um, it's, it's not, I don't have a belief in God. I have a knowing that God exists. He's tangible to me. And so when someone passes, they literally go from the physical to the spiritual. And so I still have a connection with them. So you don't need to say I'm sorry or condolences. You got to say, damn, what a great example of how to live. Okay. Now this, we're going to have this on the Dr. B VIP um, site tonight, we are going to have uh, a, a version that the Ministry of Truth will not allow. And please go to Extreme Health Academy. I mean, this is great group and dynamic um, for information. Now, so December 28th, uh, this is today, the CDC shortened the quarantine um, guidelines for COVID-19 for the general population. I know this is big news. It should have been everywhere. Uh, quote, the Center for U.S. Uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, in reversal of a previous recommendation, cut days of isolation for Americans who contract COVID-19 from 10 days to 5 days, regardless of vaccination status. Amazing. The close contacts need to quarantine. Um, um, that is put in latest guidance in line with more and more evidence suggesting that those that contract the um, virus are the most infectious two days before and three days after symptoms emerge. And, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, here we go. Uh, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, uh, quote, not all of those cases are going to be severe. In fact, many are going to be asymptomatic. She told the Newswire Service, we want to make sure that there's a mechanism by which we can safely continue to keep society functioning while following the science. Uh, end of quote. What? You know, following the science? Okay, uh, guess what? This has been the same thing going on for a year and a half, and now they're going to let you stay home only five days, even though mostly are asymptomatic. I'll tell you right now, quarantining sick people is smart. Quarantining healthy people is called tyranny. Now, you're going to hear a lot about hospital uh, occupancy, that hospitals are full, hospitals are full. 
Well, guess what? Here's an article out of hospitalmedicaldirector.com. And the title of the article is, What is the Ideal Hospital Occupancy Rate? Because figure hospitals are a business. If you have too many people in there, um, and then people coming in, they'll be turned away. So that's going to give you a bad reputation and not a good business format. I mean, if you look at high-end hotels, function best at around 75 to 80% occupancy. Because if you're 100%, you're going to turn people away. If you're less than 100%, you have to work with staff. And if you're, if you're less than 75 80%, you may have to let some staff go or your expenses for staff won't balance out. Same thing with hospitals. Hospitals are a business. So when you hear hospitals are overrun, and talk to any doctor, any doctor during their career where their hospitals nearly full or full during the entire time of residency. And you're going to see there always between 85% and 100%. So that's why every hospital fills up around around uh, the winter time, which is an increase. Now, um, here's an article, and I encourage you to get this. It'll be put on our Dr. BVIP site, the British Medical Journal. Now, this is one of the most respected medical journals in the world. The title of the article is, The End of the Pandemic Will Not Be Televised. Um, Quote, as the year 2021 started, the COVID-19 pandemic seemed to be receding. Discussions and predictions about opening up and a return to normal and achieving herd immunity were in the air. But for many, optimism receded as cases and deaths surged in India, Brazil, and elsewhere. Attention turned to SARS-CoV-2 virus variants, the most recently the emergence of Omicron. Um, just uh, as the end seemed to be on the horizon, it was interrupted by a foreboding that the pandemic could be a long way from over. Unlike previous pandemics, COVID-19 has been closely tracked through dashboards that aim to show real-time movement and the effect of the coronavirus. They track laboratory testing metrics, hospitals, intensive care admissions, transmission rates, the most recent vaccine doses uh, delivered. Now, these dashboards, with their panels of numbers, statistics, epidemic curves, and heat maps, have dominated televisions, computers, and smartphones. Uh, now, in contrast, okay, and this is, this is, oh, wait, wait here. At the core of their allure of objectivity to, uh, and data to grasp on into the midst of uncertainty and fear, now, they help populations conceptualize the needs for rapid containment and control, directing the public sentiment, fueling pressures for countermeasures, and maintaining an aura of emergency. They offer a sense of control when cases are coming down following certain countermeasures, but can drive a sense of helplessness and impending catastrophe when cases rise. Uh, have you felt it? Have you felt it? Yeah. Okay, end of quote. So, uh, the pandemic is driven by fear and media. Okay, so what is your actual risk of dying? If you talk to the average person that's sucking on their cell phone all day long, okay, they're going to think, oh, my God, it's wiping out 20, 30, 40, 50% of America. Well, let's go back in, and that's what this article does. 
the look at the Spanish flu. Now, this was the 1918 flu. What what everyone is shutting down the economy. They're shut. They're masking children. They're masking adults. They're closing businesses. Okay. Now, with every therapy, there is a risk benefit ratio. So, if you were to close all of the churches and you were to close all of the, according to you, non-essential businesses. Now, I know liquor stores, gun shops, and and Costco are all essential, according to the government. Um, But now, let's say we're going to close that. What does that do to the livelihood of people that work there? Does that add more stress? Does that help the immune system or weaken the immune system? And you say, well, no, it limits exposure to this virus. Okay, is everybody 100% at risk? Or do certain people with have certain comorbid conditions, are they more at risk? So there's always a risk-benefit ratio. Now, what's the risk of shutting down businesses, um, forced medical procedures without informed consent, face masking? Okay, all of the implementations that some states have followed, other states haven't. Okay, what's the risk of that? What's the benefit of that? Now, that risk-benefit ratio has never been, that's, that's, that's where the censorship comes in. So let's look at the interventions that were done in the Spanish flu, the one that, that killed millions of people across the world. This article goes on to state, the same British Medical Journal article, uh, quote, in 1918, the pandemic's first wave was mild and attracted relatively little attention. In the response to the second wave, which scorched its way around the globe, some cities in the U.S. implemented non-pharmaceutical inventions, interventions such as school closures, restrictions on public gatherings. Most countermeasures were relaxed within two to eight weeks, and the disruption of social life was relatively short-lived. John Perry, a leading historian of the 1918 pandemic, explained, the whole thing was very swift. Unlike COVID-19, The stress was not continuous, noting that many places experienced several months of relatively normalcy between the waves. New York and Chicago, the two countries' largest cities, never officially closed their schools, despite Chicago schools reaching an absentee rate of nearly 50%. When schools were closed, they stayed shut for a meeting of weeks, ranging one to ten weeks. End of quote. So, So when you look at this, they didn't have a constant 24-7 panic. They didn't shut down their whole schools. Just like some of our states, like South Dakota, um, Texas, and Florida are waking up. There's about uh, 14 different states that have less restrictions than the communist state that I'm in now, California. Now, what was going on back in 1918? Well, we know one thing that clean water was responsible for a 74% decline in infant mortality rate. That means that back in 1918, some of the interventions, such as um, good sanitation, refrigeration, clean water, that was not really readily available. And so the health of the population um, was considerably less. Now, it's interesting. Clean water appears to have led to a near eradication of typhoid, pneumonia, tuberculosis, meningitis, diphtheria, croup. I mean, just clean water helped. Now, if you're thinking, well, people weren't living that long. Everybody was dying back then. Again, this, this is designed to break um, 
precepts of what you think the 1918 world was like. Benjamin Radford, um, it, life's, and this is an article out of 2009, August 21st, titled the article is Human Lifespans Nearly Constant for 2,000 Years. That's right. So if you think that the average lifespan, um, okay, and this is lifespan is different than life expectancy. I mean, let's go back to 1900. So let's say life expectancy for men in 1907 was around 45 years. Does that mean that everybody was dying at 46 years? No, not even close. So think of this. If a couple has two kids, um, one of them dies in childbirth, the other lives to 90, what's the statistical um, uh, life expectancy of that child, 45 years. Why? Because you take 2 divided by 90, and that's 45. It's statistically accurate, but completely meaningless. Now, in, so when we look at lifespan, hasn't changed in 2,000 years. I've got a couple of articles here of about 300 to 400 um, B.C., of Greece that had very good records. And they're talking about people, multiple people living over 100, healthy, strong, everything. So this is, let's look at, go back to the pandemic. Because if you think that 1918 pandemic wiped out the world and that justified some of our interventions, let's look at the 1957 Asian flu. Uh, now, this, the Asian flu pandemic reached American shores around mid-year in 1957. Over the course of the next nine months, which included two waves in 1957 and early 1958, 80 million Americans, 80 million Americans were bedridden with respiratory diseases. Now, by late October, college football matches around the country were being canceled because many players were ill. Team managers were lining up for last-minute replacements. Um, ultimately, no major contests were canceled. Okay, now, without fanfare, two years, okay, Newsweek reported, without the fanfare of two years ago, the Asian flu virus was quietly picking off everyone it missed the first time around. Now, picking off doesn't mean killing. It means that if you actually caught the virus, you developed an immune system response, you're not going to catch it a second time. That's pretty much how viruses work. Now, um, when we look at the Hong Kong flu, 1968, now another pandemic virus arrived that the officials later estimated killed a million people globally. That's the Hong Kong flu. But its impact on public health interventions and social life was minimal. Okay, when you look at um, historian Mark Hausenbaum, uh, points out, quote, while at the height of the outbreak in December 1968, the New York Times described the pandemic as one of the worst in the nation's history. However, there were few school closures and businesses, for the most part, continued to operate as normal. And remember what happened in 68? You're talking Woodstock. So... What are the deaths? What, do you, what should you be concerned about? Now, when you watch the dashboards that they're talking about, uh, you know, the cell phone, the TV, the everything, okay, how many people die every year? Okay, well, in America, you're looking around 2.8 to 3 million people die every year. Okay, that's what happens when you get 300 million people that are in an aging population. Well, every year, okay, 
you're looking at almost 600,000 cancer deaths. Every year, you're looking at around 659,000 heart disease deaths. So if you're, and this is every year, we're not shutting down the businesses, knowing that cancer comes from a lot of toxic environmental exposure. We're not allocating that people don't breathe through masks or put Purell on their hands, which, which literally is carcinogenic. Or we're not telling people to not smoke and eat a healthy diet and don't eat fast foods, which also cause heart disease. So if you add up heart disease and cancer, and don't pick just a year, okay? Let's do the 21 months, because that's what it is. We're, we're adding deaths from last year to this year to panic people more. So over 2,200,000 people have died of heart disease and cancer in the last 21 months. And there's a death every 11 seconds for, for heart disease. I, I mean, you look at this, and this is crazy, okay, that we're adding up these numbers. So let's look at Worldometers, the actual freaking deaths and cases from March 2020 to December 28th, 42 million cases. And it, actually, it's 42,043,303 cases. Now, cases just means a positive test. Now, how many of those 42 million have recovered? 41,203,000, or 98% recovered. How many people died, according to this, um, 2%. Now, this is not per year. This is 21 months. There's only 12 months in a year. Okay, so now, why, why are they going back to March? Well, let me tell you. March 24, 2020, the national... Um, vital statistics system, okay, they sent a letter to all doctors, and they said, look, and this is March 24th last year, 2020, if you suspect, think uh, that, that a COVID, that somebody had COVID, got COVID, so they were hit by a motorcycle, run over by a bus, and they tested positive, or they didn't test positive, or they had the sniffles, you put COVID as a death. Now, that's important because According to the Center for Disease Control, and this is the CDC, their numbers were off about 96% of the time. And you might say, what? What, is, what does that mean? Well, when the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, um, they went through and they found out that the actual cause of COVID death. So now, now what's the difference between somebody dying from a disease as opposed to somebody dying with a disease. Okay, let's look at that. So healthy person walking along, bam, they get a disease, they die from COVID. It turns out that's about 6% of the deaths. So that 800,000 deaths that they, that, you know, and this is updated this morning, 839,605 deaths, uh, they're off about 94 uh, 94%. That means, and this is off the cdc.gov, the table um, shows types of health conditions contributing to causes mentioned in conjunction with deaths involving coronavirus 2019. For 6% of the deaths, COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned. For deaths with conditions or causes, on average, there were 2.9 
additional conditions or causes per death. So that means that the person did not die of COVID. Uh, they died with a positive COVID test. And we're not going to get into testing because that um, is not approved by the um, Ministry of Truth. We can also look at um, the impact of suicide rates on social distancing and isolation. And this goes on, and this is out of um, psychom.net. That's P-S-Y-C-O-M dot N-E-T. Uh, the title of the article is The Impact of COVID-19 on Suicide Rates. Because if you're talking social distancing, isolation, masking, um, it, it had damaging effect on every aspect of life. And then you're looking at news, 24-7 coverage of these unprecedented events serves as an additional stressor. Now, you figure 47,000 deaths per year, okay, well, in 2019, 12 million adults thought about suicide, 3.5 million attempted suicide, one point, or planned a suicide, 1.4 million attempted it, and 47,000 actually died. Okay, now this is huge because when you talk about risk-benefit ratio, what's the benefit of closing a business? Well, maybe reducing um, exposure. Okay, what's the risk of it? Suicide, suicidal thoughts. Um, massive financial collapse. So let's go back to the original article that we started. Remember, the article is British Medical Journal. The title of the article is The End of the Pandemic Will Not Be Televised. Um, quote, there is no universal definition of epidemiologic patterns of the end of a pandemic. By what metric? When, when will we know it's actually over? The World Health Organization declared that the COVID-19 pandemic um, but, but who will tell us when it's over? The ubiquity of dashboards has helped us create a sense that the pandemic will be over when the dashboard indicators all read zero. That means no infections, no cases, no deaths, or 100% vaccinated. However, respiratory pandemics of the past century show that endings not clear-cut and that pandemic closures are better um, understood as occurring with the resumption of social life and not achieving the specific epidemiologic targets. Respiratory pandemics of the past 130 years have been followed by annual seasonal waves fueled by viral endemicity and typical, um, typically continues until the next pandemic. What goes up must come back down, and the difficulty in dating the end of a pandemic is reflected in the historical and epidemiologic literature. Okay, end of quote. So think of that. Zero cases is never going to happen. Zero deaths is never going to happen. Um, zero infections is never going to happen. 100% vaccine status? Oh, yeah, that's impossible. Because what are they talking? Was it just one shot? No. Was it two shots? No. Now it's boosters. Uh, you're, they're talking the fourth and fifth booster. There's some, some health administrators are saying, no, this is going to be part of your normal vaccine schedule. Okay, this means you're going to get a shot every three to four months. So that means that some people have the shot, some people won't. Okay, and the article goes on to state, quote, the notion reinforced by dashboards that a pandemic ends when cases drop to zero is at odds with historical evidence 
and substantial influenza morbidity and mortality continues to occur season after season between the pandemics. And in interpandemic season of 1928 to 29, for example, over 100,000 excess deaths were related to influenza are estimated to have occurred in the United States in a population one-third the size of today's. Now, again, if you say 100,000 excess deaths, and that was one-third the size, you're looking at 300,000 excess deaths, 28 to 29, and nobody stopped that. Nobody stopped to shut down businesses. Now, um, quote, history suggests that the end of the pandemic will not simply follow the attainment of herd immunity or an official declaration, but gradually it will occur gradually, unevenly, as society ceased to be all consumed by the pandemic-shocking metrics. Pandemic ending is more of a question of lived experience and thus more of a sociological phenomenon than a biologic one. And thus the dashboards, which do not measure mental health, education impact, and denial of close social bonds, are not the tool that will tell us the pandemic will end. Indeed, considering how societies have come to use dashboards, they may be the tool that prevents a return to normal. Okay, end of quote. Now, um, we have another article. So think of this. The, the TV is not going to tell you that pandemic ends. Your state government isn't, unless you're in Texas, Florida, you know, the 14 other free states. I mean, our governors and certain mayors of counties are still forcing vaccination, talking about business closures, you know, making sure your papers are checked. Um, we take it back now. If you are wearing a mask, take it off. Okay, wait till you get into a store. If somebody says, put the mask on, you know what you say? You say, look, this limits my breathing, which is bad for my health. Do you have any facilities for people with my condition? We're going to take this world back. Okay, British Medical Journal, another article. This was November 2021. Are you happy with the fact checkers? Do you like fact checkers? Guess what? British Medical Journal was fact checked, and they wrote a letter to Mark Zuckerberg. Titled the article, COVID-19, Researcher Blows the Whistle on Data Integrity Issues in Pfizer's Vaccine Trial an open letter from the British Medical Journal to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and in September, a former employee of Ventia, um, Ventavia, a contract research company helping carry out the main Pfizer COVID-19 trial, providing that the British Medical Journal with dozens of internal documents, photos, audio recordings, and emails, these materials revealed a host of poor clinical trial research practices occurring at Ventavia. Um, that could impact data in integrity and patient safety. We also discovered that despite receiving a direct complaint about these problems over a year ago, the FDA did not expend Ventavia's, inspect Ventavia's trial sites. Now, the article goes on to state that Facebook fact-checkers um, said you could, not, um, you could not put this up. Okay, and they just, I mean, uh, the, the article goes on, because I don't have time right here to, to go through it, but I will tonight. Just, just look at this, man. Your, your body is full of viruses. You've got 380 80 trillion viruses inside of you and outside of you. 
You've been alive on this planet for forever. Okay, we know that the um, non-pharmaceutical interventions, it's, it's like this was a great article out of the American Institute for Economic Research. What is the catastrophic impact of COVID-forced societal lockdowns? And I just want to read the first paragraph. Quote, the present COVID-inspired forced lockdowns on business and school closures have, are, and have been are not suitable and, quite frankly, meritless and unscientific. They are disastrous and just plain wrong. There has been no good reason for this. And they go on to state 36 different studies along with seven preliminary national estimates. Okay, um, a very, very well-researched article. Okay, we've got to take this world back, and the only way that we're going to do it, okay, is is to take it back. Um, next week, we're going to talk about goal setting, and and the um, private version. We're going to talk about how to take back our governments um, without shedding blood, and there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it. Um, I know it sounds it sounds wild and impossible, uh, but I'm going to tell you, this method has been used, and there is actually a book on a step-by-step procedure to take back our rights and to take back our countries. And luckily, it doesn't involve attacking our government or our military. We're just going to take it back nonviolently. Okay, it's been used before. And it's going to be used again. But luckily, when people are, are inspired and aware of the, the, the violence that's been perpetrated and the lies that they've been told, um, their, their heart is going to grow big in their chest, and we're going to take this world back. Are you with me? Heck yes. We are going to take this back. This is Dr. John Bergman, your voice of reason. God bless you, and I love you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.